I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And today, we're going to talk about a little something I like to call books. Okay, Marcel, this whole podcast is about books. No, 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 Hannah, not books. Books. Yeah, the Harry Potter books. And books. Like, look at my arms. They're going in the air. Books. Okay, this is a non-visual medium, but I I think what you mean (laughs) is like the print culture object we have come to know and revere called the book and its representation in the Harry Potter novels, specifically Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Books. (laughs) Okay, great. But maybe first we need to get our communication skills warmed up in the sorting chat. (laughs) What a good idea, Hannah. Oh my gosh. Listen, I've been having some challenging mental health days lately. So I suggest that today we talk about something lovely, our favorite colors, and what it is we love about them. I'll go first. I love most colors. I especially love jewel tones. But my very favorite is the blue-green family, and specifically the, like, turquoise, teal, jade, aqua, seafoam family of colors. Love them all. I find them so cooling and so soothing, and they always bring me joy, and I never, ever, ever, ever get tired of them. Oh, I love that. What about you, Hannah? My favorite colors are the wide purple family, Mm. you know, ranging from a very sort of rich, deep indigo on one end to like a fuchsia edging towards pink 
on the other end, it was such a revelatory experience for me to move from like dabbling in a slightly purplish lipstick to just wearing like a full on lilac lipstick. (laughs) Like purples feel to me like they have the potential to be really like radical and Mm -hmm. punchy and exciting in terms of how you use them but like some deeper purples can sort of feel like like a neutral Mm -hmm. but they always for me it just feels like a like a slightly witchy slightly (laughs) magical color yeah i feel like purple's got powers you know yeah i love that i love thinking about purple as being like a fundamentally witchy color i think that's spectacular (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know. I think like like black is often associated with witchiness or like maybe green because mm-hmm. of the Wicked Witch of the West. But like <laughs> purple is the color of witches for me. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I have seen some people really rocking incredible like turquoise and teal type lipsticks. And I really admire mm. that. But it's just not in my it's not in my makeup repertoire. And, I, you know, I feel OK about that. Absolutely. I still remember posting a picture of all of my lipsticks probably five years ago, shortly after I moved to Vancouver and saying like, oh, I feel like buying more lipstick, but I already own every color. And people <laughs> responding and being like, there's no green in there. There's no blue in there. What are you talking about? And at the time, I was like, don't be absurd. I'm not wearing green lipstick. I'm an adult. (laughs) And then the breakthrough for me was a Witch Please event. Mm -hmm. We did this Harry Potter podcasting event for the first year of the Vancouver Podcast Festival. And a bunch of Witch Please listeners came. You can always tell the difference between regular Harry Potter podcast listeners and Witch Please listeners because the Witch Please listeners have fun lipstick. (laughs) Like... (laughs) The definitional quality of our listeners. I love that. And there is this one person who I'm so sorry, I can't remember their name, but they were wearing these huge, beautiful silver snake earrings and dark green lipstick. And it was like a very high fashion Slytherin aesthetic. Oh, wow. And that was the moment that I was like, I'm going to go out and buy a green lipstick Mm -hmm. like this week. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I love it. It's dark green. Mm. Which I find more, you know, for me, more wearable than like a light green. But like, I, you know what? I just said that. And then immediately I was like, time to get a light green lipstick. <laughs> you know what? If not now, when? Precisely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, I know I want to hear from listeners about what their favorite colors are <gasps> and why. Yes, please. In these interminable pandemic times, it can be hard to keep track of what it is that we're supposed to do tomorrow, (laughs) what it is that we (laughs) did this morning, (laughs) what we did yesterday, (laughs) what we're doing right now, what we're doing right now. (laughs) So it's a good thing that we have revision to stay on top of what we've at least said and done so far. All right. So, Marcel, at this point, we have talked about so many things that I am not even going to try to summarize them. But I'm going to grab some threads from a few previous episodes and pull them in here. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about, I think we've established this, books. Books! (laughs) Books? Books? 
And like why we think books are kind of magical and special. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, there's going to be some engagement with capitalism. Ooh. We're going to look at some of the discourses that surround books and the ideologies that underpin those discourses and why those ideologies might be in service of capitalism. Ooh. I love a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> and we may also pull in a little bit of last episode's discussion since we're also going to think about books as material objects that circulate in the world in particular ways. This sounds very exciting. It's a lot of threads to pull together. But before we get there, I want us to just step back and take a look at the kinds of books and other print culture objects that show up in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And guess what? What? To do that, I've created... Is it a, is it a chart? Oh, it's a chart. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's a chart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So I know that I for sure missed some things, but I believe in my heart that this is representative. So here's what I'm going to do, okay? I'm going to go through the chart from the least number of things to the most number of things. You're going to move through in terms of what we get the fewest examples of to what we get the most examples of. Oh, you are so good at interpreting my vagaries. Been doing it for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we've got a couple of examples of muggle print stuff in the books, in this book in particular. We have some vague reference to mail, and we have a vague reference to newspaper. (laughs) Which is already super interesting that so much of the wizard stuff is named, Mm -hmm. but that the muggle stuff is like, they don't refer to like an actual London newspaper. It's just like, you know. Newspaper. And what is especially thrilling about this example is that the mention of the newspaper is just for when I think it's Harry and Dudley come inside and they have to step on it to get the mud. It's like it's like to catch the mud off their off their <laughs> shoes because Petunia's just cleaned the house. <laughs> so <laughs> that's amazing. They're not even reading it. No. <laughs> And I know that this is, you know, this isn't the case in all the books. Like, they definitely talk about, like, cards and letters from Marge and stuff in other books. But just for this example is is delightful. Okay, so those are our muggle things. So then we have periodicals. But as far as I can tell, we only have three examples of periodicals in here. We have Witch Weekly, which I'm guessing is a weekly periodical i think it's a weekly and i'm gonna i'm gonna get even more bold Mm -hmm. and say that it is a women's weekly oh you don't say Mm, yeah 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 Mm -hmm. yeah i think you're probably right about that that kind of thing is like uh like recipes and like house tips and maybe some gossip Mm, like mm -hmm. yeah it's gotta have gossip if it has a most charming smile or most winning smile award or something, right? Like a hundred percent. There's definitely like some celebrity content there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then we have the Daily Prophet, which I'm going to hazard a guess is a daily periodical. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> right there in the name that's the newspaper yeah exactly it's the wizarding newspaper everybody everybody reads it seems to be the primary source of news among witches and wizards in the uk 
And then we have this sort of vague reference to comics in Ron's room. And they're comics that are about the adventures of this muggle, which I find quite cute and charming. And the reason that I've got comics under periodicals is because, at least in the muggle world, that's how comics work. They are a periodical. They do come out in like regular installments. Yeah. And given how the comics are meant to signify here as a like light reading material that a teen boy might enjoy Mm -hmm. it's more likely that it's a sort of periodical floppy yeah or like an archie comic kind of situation than that it's like a formally published graphic novel yes (laughs) not impossible just more likely there may be like a bound omnibus version of this muggle comic i don't know but it's not scattered across ron's room that's for sure yeah we've established that the publishing industry in the wizarding world is wild so (laughs) who knows wild and untamed all right so there's that so then we have methods of communication which i find very intriguing so we have letters from the ministry we have letters from hogwarts we have personal correspondence between friends and family okay we have howlers those are not print but i just find it amazing that they're still sent in an envelope (laughs) like they're quasi print yeah like they are circulated via the medium Mm -hmm. of paper and envelope and then they transform into oral yeah upon arrival which is amazing yeah yeah incredible hybrid of form (laughs) yes yes um we have cards and Mm -hmm. fan mail And we have notes such as, you know, information like your detention will happen at this time. And we have permission, notes to give permission, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, We have ghost mail, which I find very curious. Nearly Headless Nick is informed via mail that he cannot join the Headless Hunt. And I have many questions about how, (laughs) how (laughs) ghost mail works. Is it delivered by ghost owl? Is it a dead owl? (laughs) It's a dead owl. And also, like, is it correspondence that was written by a living person who then died? Like, how does it work? (laughs) I wrote you this letter and then I killed it. So now it's a ghost letter. (laughs) (laughs) How? Yeah, that's it. Marvelous. That's That's how. Marvelous. We also have Filch's Quick Spell Correspondence course. So I've got this categorized under correspondence and not under like school material Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because of the fact that it involves writing and communicating back and forth. Sent through mail. Yeah. And then the last one that I have in this category is one that I had a lot of trouble placing, which is Tom Riddle's Diary. Because it's a hybrid. It is definitely a hybrid. And... I decided ultimately to put it under communication because the diary functions as a means to communicate more than to give information. So that's why I made that choice. But, you know, I don't hold that choice. That's not the hill that I'll die on, so to speak. I mean, it belongs (laughs) all over the place. It also belongs in muggle Mm -hmm. print culture because they established that it was bought in Vauxhall, I think. Oh, wow. This is something that that I noted particularly on this read-through. He bought it from a news agent in Vauxhall Road, London. I might be saying that wrong, and if so, I apologize. (laughs) But diary in the UK is the word for agenda. It's a planner. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Yes. Right? Because it specifies, <laughs> one, that the faded year on the cover told him it was 50 years old. Mm-hmm. And then when he's flipping through it, it says there wasn't the faintest trace of writing on any of the pages, not even Auntie Mabel's birthday or dentist half past three. <gasps> Oh my God, of course, of course, of course. And those aren't things that you would just put in a diary. Those are things you would put in an agenda in the North American context. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. I never put that together until I was like, my friend Holly Kate is constantly calling her agenda her diary because that's what they call it in the UK. It's an agenda. Anyway, so it's a muggle agenda. Wow. So... In that sense, it goes in muggle. Mm -hmm. In the sense that it is like a magical communication device, it goes in communication. Mm -hmm. In the sense that it's a bound codex, it goes in books. Like, it's a weird beast. Wow. We're going to talk about it so much more. We're going to talk about it so much more in this episode. Oh, I'm excited. I can't wait. I had one other thought about your communication point. Yeah. Isn't it weird considering how incredibly important correspondence is in the wizarding world that the mail isn't nationalized. Yeah. <laughs> There's no mail service. No. Like everything else in this world runs through the Ministry of Magic. Yeah. But mail service depends on your personal ownership of a mail delivering animal. Yeah. I had never thought about that before. That's incredible. It's really weird. Poor Errol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This owl needs to retire. It would make more sense even if it was like, you know, you take your letters and you go drop them off mm-hmm. at the mailbox and then a ministry owl comes and picks them up and delivers them. But the idea that it's just your personal job to own an <laughs> owl and have that owl fly all of your mail one piece at a time to all of its recipients, that is wild. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So now we're moving on to my very specifically named category, other. Love other. This is where I put all the print things that I came across that I didn't know where else to put them. All right. So, so we've got things like labels. We've got posters. We've got banners and signs. We have announcements. We've got test papers and essays and lists. We've got files and folders to keep the files in. We've got autographs. We also have blood on the wall and icing. (laughs) You put blood. Where else was blood on the wall going to go? Communication? I mean, it could have gone in communication. <laughs> it's communicating something. It's true. Very strongly. Yes. <laughs> this is incredible. This is an incredible list. Mm-hmm. And I am so, so excited to drill down a little bit more <laughs> into like this wild, expansive world of how communication and print happen. <laughs> Because seeing them all just on a page together really drives home that, um, well, there's a lot of ways of sharing information in the wizarding world. (laughs) All of which are fiercely dependent on print and literacy. Yes. But Hannah, there's one more category 
that I have not yet discussed. Is it books? Books! Remarkably, (laughs) books are extremely important in the wizarding world. So I wanted to like make a whole bunch of different categories of books because there are so many, but ultimately I just, I, I came up with three. So we've got a set of cookbooks slash other kinds of guides. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one, I, again, this is one of those things where the more I read the Harry Potter books, the more I come across little things that just, I must have somehow skipped over or forgotten about, but they're so funny. <laughs> Charm Your Own Cheese is the title of a book that Molly Weasley owns. And then there's another one called One Minute Feasts. It's magic. (laughs) It's so funny (laughs) that just actual books about using magic would be like, make a feast like magic. And it's like, no, but like we know it's magic. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch. Charm Your Own Cheese, Enchantment and Baking, One a Minute Feast, It's Magic, and then Gilderoy Lockhart's Guide to Household Pests. That one, interestingly, seems to be the only Gilderoy Lockhart book, at least that I was able to find, that has some kind of function <laughs> articulated in the title. Yes. He seems to write primarily memoir. Mm-hmm. And then this is his, like, household guidebook. But, like, a thing like celebrities yeah. will do like a tie-in totally. guidebook or cookbook or advice book it's very interesting that molly weasley owns these like really practical mm-hmm. um household oriented books those are definitely meant to tell us something about her oh yes oh yes so then we have the assigned school books i again this read through was really surprised to see that there's only one non-Lockhart book on the list for second years, and it's the standard book of spells grade two. So A Beginner's Guide to Transfiguration, which Ginny has to get, presumably they continue to use that for a couple of years, which is sort Mm -hmm. of interesting information. But so the Lockhart books, Break with a Banshee, Gadding with Ghouls, Holidays with Hags, Travels with Trolls, Voyages with Vampires, Wanderings with Werewolves, and then Year with the Yeti, And then there's the library book, Most Potent Potions. And then a couple of other book mentions that I noticed were were Lockhart's, I guess, most recent memoir, Magical Me, in all caps. (laughs) And the Encyclopedia of Toadstools that I think Arthur uses to hit Lucius Malfoy during their bookstore brawl. Great. Great. (laughs) I love that. And that's my chart. All right, Marcel, I love this chart. Mm -hmm. It has already got me incredibly excited to talk more about the world of books and other kinds of print in Harry Potter. But maybe first, we need a little mini theory lesson. Ooh, what a good idea. Let's do that now. Once again, we find ourselves with all these examples and no theory to make sense of them. Whatever shall we do? Fear not, Marcel. Transfiguration class is about to begin, and as your instructor, I'll make it my mission to give you the tools that you need to think critically and analytically about all those print objects. Yay! And you know what tool you need? (laughs) This tool. (laughs) I'm pointing at myself. (laughs) That's good. That's good. That's a sick self-burn, Hannah. 
<laughs> because today I'm kind of cheating, which is to say I'm going to draw on scholarship, not by important and canonical critics in the field of book history and print culture studies. Um, the scholar I'm going to be citing is is me. Wait a second. Are you saying that you are not an important canonical scholar of print culture? No, I'm not. I'm actually I'm actually not a, a early field defining <laughs> scholar. Not yet. But it's not really cheating because I am a scholar of book history and print culture studies. And it's a huge field with a massive number of major figures in it. And we will spend more time with them as the series continues. Like, you're going to be well and truly exhausted with learning about Gerard Jeanette by the time we're done with you. But for today, you're just going to have to settle for Hannah's Hot Takes About Book History. (gasps) Are you ready? Oh, I am as ready as I will ever be, which is to say, super ready. Wonderful. Let's begin with a little bit of history. The year was 2019. Oh my God, were we ever so young? Mm -hmm. And everyone was talking about Marie Kondo's new Netflix series and the rise of minimalism. And as is usually the way when women of color gain a popular platform, a lot of white ladies fucking came for her. And Mm. the crux of what people were mad at Kondo about was her suggestion that people might... (gasps) gasp, get rid of some of their books if those books have become stress-inducing clutter. <laughs> oh my. You can just get rid of them. And then every white lady on Twitter was like, books are special! The audacity. <laughs> there was undoubtedly a ton of xenophobia and racism and orientalism at work in people's anger. Mm-hmm. And I go into this more in the article I'm drawing on, which we will link to in the show notes. It's called, boldly enough, Liking Books is Not a Personality. <laughs> But there was also something going on there that had to do with the special status that self-identified book lovers Mm. attribute to books and the outrage they feel when people suggest that books might just be objects, Mm -hmm. commodities even, like underwear or coasters or anything else you might want to declutter. Right. Because books are special, aren't they, Hannah? That's the idea. Like they're special bordering on sacred Mm. for some people. Mm -hmm. Which leads us to the question, how did they get this way? Wait, 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 wait. You mean books are not inherently special? That's my bold suggestion. You mean that they've become special through some kind of socialization? (laughs) Yeah, that's my bold take. (laughs) Uh, So we know it isn't the physical form. There's nothing inherently sacred about the practice of binding paper together. We don't lovingly save like phone books, Mm. though it is a very cool and very smart invention that makes information both long lasting and super portable. Mm -hmm. Like they're a great technology, but it's not that sort of binding into the codex form (laughs) that does it. Mm -hmm. And it can't be the content because books can contain literally anything. Some books are full of garbage. (laughs) And yet books have taken on this incredibly special status, both as stand-ins for the act of reading, which we also consider to be innately special or magical, Mm -hmm. right? We've got this very strongly held idea that like reading makes people better. Mm -hmm. 
and as sort of trophies, like status symbols. So the quality of your bookshelf is imagined to say all kinds of things about you as a person beyond I can afford to buy a lot of books. Mm -hmm. But what if I told you Mm -hmm. that owning a lot of books wasn't any better than owning a lot of forks? (gasps) It's just owning things. Holy moly. I would tell you that some of our listeners are going to get super mad. (laughs) You better believe it. (laughs) Bookish people hate this conversation. But I am a bold truth teller, so I shall continue. Mm, Hear, hear, Hannah. There is a long classed history of book consumption as social posturing. And understanding something more about the evolution of bookishness will help us understand how we became so emotionally invested Mm. in the specialness of books. All right, all right. So there are a few different places we could begin. We could talk, for example, about the Stoic philosophers and their anxieties about unseemly attachment to books. Or I could tell you this really great story about how Johannes Gutenberg's business partner, that's the inventor of print, Mm. uh, Johannes Fust, took the entire inventory of the first printed Bibles to France and tried to sell them as manuscripts, that is, as handwritten rather than printed books, until people became suspicious of the uncannily identical nature of the Bibles and accused them of making a deal with the devil. This is incredible. I love history so much. It's so good. It's so full of bananas anecdotes. <laughs> oh, history. But I actually want to start us in the late 18th century with the industrialization of paper production and then of print because, baby, I want to talk about capitalism. Woo, I love it. Okay. So books were arguably the first mass-produced commodity. Hmm. And the publishing industry spearheaded the idea of making money by mass-producing commodities cheaply and selling them at a considerable profit. We learned how to, like, steam power making print, newspapers, books, periodicals, before we learned how to steam power basically anything else. Wow, weird. (laughs) So publishing isn't accidentally capitalist. (laughs) It's the beating heart of capitalism. Holy moly. And one of the ways that this newly robust book market figured out how to make their industry profitable was by actively investing in the anthropomorphizing of books so that people wouldn't just want them, but would love them. Tell me more. So we've got the rise of industrial capitalism, which is linked to the power of the emerging bourgeoisie or the middle class, right? They're beginning to transform the domestic sphere Mm -hmm. so that, say, what used to be the sort of quasi-public space of, like, aristocratic manor houses Mm -hmm. is being replaced by the middle class home as, like, a personal sanctuary from the harried world of business. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And in those new private homes, the middle class is developing, like, leisure activities, right? We've got the invention of leisure. Right. Like playing the piano and how the piano becomes a status of middle-class leisure activity. Mm-hmm. And central to middle-class leisure was reading. Mm-hmm. And tied, intimately tied into the act of reading, particularly the act of reading as like a private leisure activity, not as something done publicly in, in churches, but as something you did alone in your own house. Central to that was the idea of building a luxuriously well-appointed personal library. Okay. 
So what you're saying is that buying and collecting books became a form of class performance? 100%. And that continues through the 19th and into the 20th century. It's continued to be super important for people to distinguish themselves by owning the right kinds of books Mm -hmm. and displaying them in conspicuous ways. But remember that thing about anthropomorphization and loving books? Yeah. That's really key. So by imbuing mass-produced books with an aura of livingness by making them special and worthy of love, the book industry pulls this really cunning sleight of hand. It distracts us from the fact that these are mass-produced commodities that rely on the alienation of labor, environmental devastation, and other sinister and exploitative practices. Mm -hmm. Right? We become collectively invested in an ideological understanding of books that circulates and recirculates through the language or discourses we use to talk about books and reading as inherently special. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's like it's like I see the matrix. (laughs) The logical culmination of this ideology is the contemporary culture of bookishness Mm -hmm. that we see on sites like book riot which like no shade to book riot i love it it's you know tons of super super smart people book riot has these like book fetish columns where they link to things like tank tops that say it's not hoarding if it's books Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right just like no more transparent an example of a discourse that feeds into the ideology that is books are a special commodity unlike other commodities that then feeds into a sort of capitalist investment in the sort of fetishization of the object in a way that alienates the nature of the labor that creates the object. Wow. This is incredible. (laughs) The special status of books is so powerful that many people have still not noticed that Amazon is not a bookstore. (laughs) I mean, you could could say the same thing about Indigo? <laughs> you sure could. Like, you find me a chain bookstore that doesn't make the bulk of its profit on cushions and quote unquote reading socks. And I will show you a small independent bookstore and or a used bookstore. <laughs> Yes, 100%. This is the intensity of the kind of ideologies that are attached to books, that they are so special Mm -hmm. as commodities that they can almost spread their aura of specialness to the things around them so that like buying books isn't like really participation in capitalism, right? Because it's books. It doesn't count. But then they can, like, spread that to, like, well, if buying books isn't really participation in capitalism, then it also isn't participation in capitalism when I buy that novelty mug Mm -hmm. at Indigo (laughs) or when I sign up for Amazon Prime. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And if, like, bookishness is understood to be somehow separated and not contributing to capitalism, then it's like, oh... I have this bookish friend, they are going to love these reading socks that I can buy at Chapters or Indigo or whatever and give to them. And it's like a thoughtful gift and not just the reproduction of exploitative labor practices. (laughs) 100%. And it's really worthwhile here distinguishing bookishness as a culture that is like tied into late capitalism and its logics Mm -hmm. from, say, 
literacy. Right. Yes. Right? Like, literacy matters. Mm -hmm. Literacy is really important. You know, we live in a culture that is very frequently, like, writing-based, and the capacity to participate in that culture is a really important tool of empowerment for people. So, like, literacy, super significant. Access to information, super significant. The democratization of information, its ability to circulate, these things all really matter. Mm -hmm. What doesn't matter is owning books. (gasps) (laughs) It's true. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's fun. Like, Dr. Heal thyself, I own so many freaking books. Oh, same, same. I also pay for Amazon Prime. Like, we're all monsters. (laughs) Listen, we don't have to be outside of a system to critique it. Otherwise, none of us would ever be able to critique capitalism ever. It's true. But this was all really circulating in my brain as I was revisiting specifically Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and thinking about a magical book that literally has a person in it. Mm -hmm. And what that tells us about how we think about books as objects What you'll often hear people who really love books say is that books aren't things, they're like experiences Mm -hmm. or like portals Mm -hmm. or something like that, right? So it's like this attempt to anthropomorphize the material object to try to make it something other than what it is. For all that I have like framed this in terms of a critical history, interpreting objects in different ways isn't a bad thing. We need to think about it, particularly where... It is an ideology that encourages us to ignore labor practices, right? We want to know about those things and think about those things. Mm -hmm. But the idea that I have, like, relationships with the objects in my life, like, that's not a weakness. It's not (laughs) not a weakness to have feelings about things. (laughs) But I think the way that our feelings about books operate is a really interesting lens into what's happening in, in this book. One of the other things that this makes me think of is the way that the Harry Potter fandom, including you and me, have really also struggled with our relationship to the books in light of their author's transphobia. Like this is something that which just keeps coming up. We keep talking about the way that it's having an impact on us and our beloved sibling podcast the gaily prophet has given all kinds of very thoughtful strategies for how to still participate in the fandom without lining jk rowling's pockets with money but i just keep coming back to this like thinking about how hard it feels to not buy copies of the harry potter books like that seems to be like a very real and legitimate sticking point. And it's one that I get, like, like, let's say you want to buy them used. I totally get the desire to have uniform books, even though we can agree it doesn't actually matter. It doesn't change the story in any meaningful way, but it changes how we feel about the books on our bookshelves. If we've got like one American cover, one adult cover, like one hard cover that's from the original run. Like the way that books have been marketed is so obviously designed to make us want to collect them and have full sets. (laughs) 
Yes. These ideologies are also at work in the disdain that print book readers sometimes express towards people who read on ebooks or who prefer audiobooks, which is a disdain that is in part deeply ableist because it ignores the way that ebooks and audiobooks increase access to literacy for people who can't necessarily access or read print books. But it also betrays, again, this sort of ideological investment in, I've said this before, but the word that I'm using here is the codex. Mm -hmm. And the codex is the particular technology of the bound physical printed book. And that thing, which is a cool invention, Mm -hmm. has been imbued with with a lot more meaning than that. You know what else is a cool invention? What? The spoon. Well, that's a segue if ever I've heard one. (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hannah, you know what all this reminds me of? What's that? It reminds me of this incredible Georges Poulet quote that I always think about from my sociology and materiality of text class with Professor Tom Mole from my undergrad. It goes something like this. Books are objects on tables and on windowsills. Something, something, something. I think you're remembering the opposite of that quote. What? Okay. It goes like this. Books are objects. On a table, on bookshelves, in store windows, they wait for someone to come and deliver them from their materiality, from their immobility. Are they aware that an act of man might suddenly transform their existence? They appear to be lit up with that hope. Read me, they seem to say. I find it hard to resist their appeal. No, books are not just objects among others. Oh, that is that is the opposite of what I remembered. That's like exactly what you were saying in the last segment. Okay. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It comes from his essay, The Phenomenology of Reading, in which he argues that books are special because reading is special. Okay. <laughs> well, now that we've cleared that up, let's take our owls and apply all this excellent theory to the book at hand. The belief that reading and books are inherently good Mm -hmm. is a screen for a lot of harmful behavior, Mm. including the fact that well-read and highly literate people are often monsters. Ah, yes. Yeah. 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 Much as in this book, the physical form of Tom Riddle's diary, its deep innocuousness, its banality, Mm -hmm. how could a diary possibly hurt anyone, conceals the fact that it is in fact a deeply dangerous object 
This is making me want to have another episode later on where we talk about books as dangerous objects, because I think that is also an exciting conversation to have in light of the Harry Potter books. Maybe for book five. Oh, yes. Yes. Especially because, you know, in the larger context, like we know, Harry Potter is one of the most banned books, right? That a lot of the time... The banning of books is a way of restricting the circulation of information. Right, right. And this is part of why this gets so complicated because, like, books are things, but books are also information, but books are also ideas, and they're also feelings. And, uh, and like, we see that in this book, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, we've got so many different ways that books signify in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And I, I think the first big one is that they are a classed demand, Mm -hmm. right? Very early on, we've got this image of every student at Hogwarts being expected to buy the full library of Lockhart's books. Mm -hmm. And we know that like the accumulation of a matching library is like a very middle class conceit. Mm -hmm. And so... That's held up to us as a way of telling us, you know, that the Weasleys are, like, not a comfortably middle-class family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about how outrageous it is that Lockhart was allowed to put seven of his books on the syllabus and require that students at every single level in Hogwarts had to purchase a full set. That's outrageous. That is exploitative in and of itself. It is fundamentally outrageous and a good reminder that Dumbledore, instead of doing his actual job, (laughs) is too busy, I guess, turning Harry into a child soldier. So like, he's got (laughs) shit on his mind. But books take on this like central presence in the wizarding world right from the get-go. So, you know, we've talked last episode about, like, the publishing industry and the idea of the bestseller. Mm -hmm. So then right off the bat, we've got this, like, interesting, weird tension between, like, books about magic that are just, like, books about magic. You buy them at the bookstore and they teach you how to do magic. And they're your course books. So they're, like, a household guide, whatever. There's books about magic. And then there's magical books. Right? So there's like the bookstore that's got all of the like fucking banal books that teach you to do spells. But then you go into the library Mm -hmm. and it's like the books are whispery. That's right. They're printed on unicorn skin. Ooh, gross. (laughs) So like I feel like you could add another category into your print culture objects, which is which books are about magic and which books are magic. Yeah. Yeah, like in the next book when they have to buy the Monster Book of Monsters. Right? Oh, I'm so excited to get to the Monster Book of Monsters. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, you're so right. But so much of the way that these books in the Harry Potter novels are sort of figured and represented just mirrors back that conversation that we were having in the last segment about how we are led to believe that books are magical. Like it's kind of remarkable. Maybe it's not remarkable. Maybe it's not at all surprising, but that books in the wizarding world would sort of manifest that specialness to the extreme of being themselves Mm. magical, you know? Like Mm -hmm. we don't hear anything about forks and spoons being magical in the wizarding world, right? 
They're just regular objects. But books in the wizarding world do, in fact, get anthropomorphized. (laughs) Yes, often like literally anthropomorphized. Like either they've got a fragment of a person's soul inside (laughs) of them or they're like actual animals that you have to learn how to handle, as we will see in the next book. But that that part of what seems to make them magical or non-magical is how transparent their relationship to capitalism is, right? Mm-hmm. When we are remembering that a book is a commodity, it sucks the magic aura out of them. So like Lockhart's books lose their aura of magic because he is constantly talking about their circulation. He's constantly shilling them. He's constantly talking about them being bestsellers. He's forcing people to buy them. And so like they are so transparently commodities. That's right. That's right. And so it's like, oh, these books, basically garbage because I am reminded that they are a commodity. But the books in the library, which hypothetically were at some point also produced, sold, circulated. Some of them might be pre-capitalist books. That is entirely possible. It's an old, it's an old institution. <laughs> Maybe most, most pertinent Persians. <laughs> could be, could be in fact pre-capitalism. <laughs> but these books are still, you know, objects mm-hmm. that were physically created and circulated in some way. But it's their distance from capitalism that allows them to become magic like actually physically like anthropomorphized magical things. And what interests me about that space between books about magic and books that are magical is the way that Tom Riddle's diary as this like dangerous object is like a liminal object in between those extremes Mm -hmm. because it is stamped with its relationship to the banalities of capitalism. Right? It was bought at a newsstand. It's a fucking agenda. Probably not a nice one. Yeah. If you bought it at a newsstand, right? Probably just a boring one. And it's empty. Like it's nothing. It's nothing. Like you. I bet it doesn't have a single sticker in it. Probably not a single sticker. Probably nary a strip of washi tape. (laughs) Nary a strip. (laughs) But. He's literally put a soul inside of it. So there is something like perverse Mm. about taking this like sort of mundane, non-magical book and making it magical. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before, but you're totally right. It is made clear to us that this is a very mundane object and it's bad that it's been made magical Mm -hmm. because it's been made magical in Mm -hmm. a bad way (laughs) it has been made magical in a bad way and it contains information Mm -hmm. like many other books do uh but that information is dangerous right like oh Mm -hmm. we've been talking a lot about the specific books but let's talk about the library because you've made a note in our script here about the library as the sole site of knowledge, which I find really, really interesting in this conversation about how books function in the Harry Potter novels versus like our society's like fetishization fetishization of book ownership. Yeah. So the library in Hogwarts 
is synonymous with access to information. And for the first few books, at least, the challenge is not, does that information exist in the library? We'll encounter more forbidden knowledge as we continue Mm. that maybe isn't in any books. And then it's like, whoa, whoa, knowledge that's not in books. What? But at this stage, all of the knowledge is in books and all of those books are in the library. It's all very stable and it's all very discoverable. The challenge is just accessing it. That's right. That some of those books are forbidden and some of those books are, you know, you have to get special permission to see them. And right. So some knowledge isn't necessarily accessible, but all of the knowledge is there. Like it's there pointing at the library. It's there. (laughs) And there's no better sign of that than the fact that like the whole mystery of what the basilisk is, is solved by a scrap of paper in Hermione's hand. That scrap of paper is in her hand after she all of a sudden says, I have to go to the library and then runs to the library and then is petrified on her way out. Yes, precisely. It's interesting to think about the way that the library is figured in the series, at least in the series so far, both as containing all necessary knowledge, but also as containing accurate knowledge. Oh, yes. Right? That you can trust what you find in the library. Because we are surrounded in the rest of the book, one, by examples of books that are lies. Mm-hmm. Like all of Lockhart's book and also <laughs> Tom Riddle's diary. Yeah. Right? Most of the books that we learn by name are lies. And hypothetically, <laughs> those books, at least Lockhart's, also in a library. So yeah. uh, That's true. But also that, like, if we return to your chart, there are so many examples of other forms of the circulation of print. Mm -hmm. And that information is often also, like, authoritative and, like, rich with information and, and full of significance, right? There are lots of other ways to learn things. And there's a few things that makes me think about, including the way that, like, Our fixation, our cultural fixation on books Mm -hmm. means that we have a tendency not to preserve and archive more ephemeral kinds of print. Yes, totally. And when we don't preserve and archive more ephemeral forms of print, we lose the histories of people who don't have access to the most mainstream forms of print production. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So like working class histories get lost. Like a lot of black history gets lost because we're looking at cultures that are often not publishing books, right? you know, pre-19th century. And then, of course, the idea that real knowledge only exists in books also, like, devalues primarily oral cultures and sort of sets up this hierarchy where, like, cultures that use a lot of print are, like, more civilized than cultures that don't. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's a lot of implications to that, that, like, the library is where all good and real and stable knowledge is because there's a lot of other things just around Hogwarts Mm -hmm. that are reminding us all the time that we should be like really suspicious of that idea. (laughs) Yes, but we're not suspicious of the idea because the librarian, Madame Pince, is constantly yelling at students for touching books. And so that is there to remind us that books are special and they need to be (laughs) preserved. (laughs) You can tell because they are simultaneously the holders of all important knowledge, but also you are not allowed to touch them. Yeah! Like, there's a restricted section in the library. 
I don't know. Maybe in the UK there are things like restricted sections, but there, there's no restricted section in our libraries, but there are rare book rooms, which is mm. different. It's like, yeah, we have that book in the rare book room. You can come and look at it, but you have to wear special gloves and the temperature is controlled. Don't you dare bring a pen in here. Don't you dare. Oh, if I catch you with a pen, oh. if I catch you with a pen in here, I swear to God. But it's not because the books have, quote unquote, dangerous information. It's just because the books are super special, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't know this. Maybe the restricted section is just only available to like fourth years and on because they at that point have taken their rare books class. Mm, mm-hmm. Like that's the point where you can specialize in rare books and you learn like the proper handling mm-hmm. of um, <laughs> rare and extremely <laughs> fragile print objects. That are printed on unicorn skin. Like you can't just get another one of those, Harry. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You accidentally set that book on fire. It's over. (laughs) Now that information is gone forever. It was an illuminated (laughs) manuscript. There were only two copies. (laughs) Listen to all these sick book history jokes that we are just laying down right now. (laughs) So we are obviously going to do more episodes about book history Mm -hmm. and print culture. (laughs) I feel like we're just like, portioning themselves out to ourselves as a treat because we love them so much (laughs) as a treat but i'm glad we started here today by just starting to wrap our heads around like what are books and how do we think about them yeah and why do we think about them in such strange and (laughs) confusing ways (laughs) strange and confusing Mm. Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 12 of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca, or of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our endlessly patient production team. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. And thanks to you, witches, for listening. We depend on you to help us spread the word. And one way you can help us is by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Every week, we'll read the names of our five-star reviewers here. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me mispronounce your name while Hannah claps her hands like a child on Christmas morning. Okay, so this week, thanks to Gail underscore is underscore hot. I bet you are, you saucy minx. Ms. Vandy, Lena Hargadal. Hmm. I bet you that's a hard G. Yeah. Lena Hargadal, Nat Sunshine Emoji, Steph LB120995, dot SARS, Pasty underscore shh oh pastiche yeah pastiche (laughs) i didn't get that you're gonna be better at this than me by the time we're done i cannot wait until the tables turn and this becomes hannah's job juliet juliet underscore and inner underscore teenager thank you all so much for your five-star reviews 
Also, don't forget to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. We're about to release some exclusive Neil Barnholden content, <gasps> which you don't want to miss. No, you don't. On our next episode, we'll be concluding our discussion of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But until then, later witches. <laughs> <laughs>